This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, hey, beer drinkers, tasters, and sippers. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers to get their tips, tricks, and secrets right into your little grubby hands. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Yeah, so on today's episode, well, we're just going to go ahead and warn you, it's going to be a long one. That's right. Because we got a lot of stuff to do today. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. We're going to take a little bit of feedback here. We're going to uh, go into, well, we're skipping the pub today. No beer for us. That makes That's right. Well, well, later, later. But hey, the AHA Governing Committee election is closing at the end of March. In two days. So. That's right. Yeah. That means you've got basically all, no time to listen to these interviews, make up your decisions, and go make your vote happen. So if you want, check the notes. We'll tell you exactly when the interviews start, and uh, then you can go listen to that first and come back and listen to everything else. But remember, the AHA Governing Committee works for you. That's right. If you're an AHA member, you need to vote in this election because these are the people who uh, – Represent your interests to the AHA and uh, your point of contact. So do it, do it, do it. So before we get into the meat of the program or the beer of the program, as it were, we want to tell you a little bit about how you can support the podcast. If you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you'll see a bunch of links you can click on there. One of them is the store where you can buy our books, an experimental brewing t-shirt, uh, lots of cool stuff. And uh, by doing that, you help support the podcast. You can click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount that you like, and that will go towards our charity. And our charity at the moment is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, and we're trying to raise a thousand 
thousand bucks for them to help out those pooches. You can also click on the link for Brew Your Own magazine to subscribe to Brew Your Own. You can click on the link for the American Homebrewers Association to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy. Or if you want to buy something from Amazon, you can go to our website and click on the Amazon link and buy it through our website. When you do any of those things, it won't cost you an extra cent, but we'll get just a little bit of money back to help support the podcast and our travels so we can keep going around and checking out breweries and telling you about them and interviewing different brewers. Yeah, there you go. All right. So lots of ways to support the podcast. Make sure you support us because, well, that's what we need in order to be able to do this <laughs> and right. make those experiments happen. As we always do, a little bit of feedback because we'd like your feedback. First piece of feedback comes from uh, Corey Monson on Facebook, who says, Hey guys, I listened to the latest Q&A episode, which would have been the last episode, and found something that may help the brewer looking for a chart with substitutes for American malts. And there's a nice link on homebrewsupply.com, where they actually provide a handy-dandy table of different uh, malt comparisons with uh, substitutions. We'll make sure the link is in the liner notes. And uh, Corey says, keep up the good work. So there you go. Very handy. All right, and our next piece of feedback comes from Tim Harris via email from, well, a, an embarrassing long period of time ago, but <laughs> I just dug it out and put it into the podcast. Whoops. Oops. Sorry, Tim. Uh, Tim says, hey, guys, love the podcast. I was listening religiously from episode one as the episodes dropped until kids hockey season started. And I'm just getting caught back up. Congratulations on your anniversary. Almost a half a year late. Well, Tim, I'm thank you for your uh, congratulations. Almost about three months after you sent the email. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, nice shout out to No Lie in Spokane, my favorite Spokane brewery. Besides being awesome brewers with super beer, they take great pride in their hometown, popularizing slogans like Born and Raised, IPA, and Spokane Style. They distribute quite a few of their beers regionally these days. The proper pronunciation for No Lie is like No Lie. They were originally named Northern Lights, but chose to rebrand and change their name after an East Coast brewery usurped the moniker, and some beer names as well, if I recall correctly. The other brewery did not respond to any of their legal inquiries, so rather than spend any more cash or negative energy on fighting it, they chose to rename themselves with one of their local nicknames, No Lie, Totally Honest Beer, which they used as part of their rebranding campaign. Kind of a fun story involving taking the high road, even when you're right. Cheers, Tim. And if you guys remember, this was from a few episodes back when we talked about No Lie Brewing Company doing a fundraiser to uh, raise money for a family in distress in Spokane. Yep. So thank you, Tim, for the feedback. That was awesome. Yeah, and I appreciate the correction because I mispronounced it as no lie. So now I know that it's no lie, and I'll never do that again. No lie, no fooling, and yes, you will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and one last thing. Obviously, if you are on the podcast feed and subscribe to the podcast, you have already heard this. But if you haven't, go check out last week's episode, uh, episode number six of The Brew Files, where we talk about, well... We talk about Drew losing his bananas. <laughs> I had so much fun, I have to admit. Yeah, so if you want to actually hear me have kind of a little bit of an oral uh, breakdown, shall we say, uh, you should totally go and listen to it. <laughs> but that's episode <laughs> six on the on the website or on the podcast feed of The Brew Files. So uh, you can also, if you really don't care about me losing my, my marbles, you can at least learn something about recipe design and how we tackle a brand new style. All right. So there you go. This would normally be the part of the show when we head out to the pub, but we have so much stuff to talk about today that, well, we got to skip the beer and just get to talking. Okay. So uh, with all that out of the way, it's now time for some disaster stories. So we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, 
we'll hear about my brewing disaster, Drew's brewing disaster, and uh, some stories from other people. We'll be right back. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. And hey, welcome back, everybody, to the program. You know, it's April Fool's time. And you know what? I don't think there are any people out there who are even more foolish than brewers. We all have our shares of times when we've been the fool. I mean, something about a hobby that involves, you know, manual labor, hot hot chemicals, uh, steaming things, and inebriation. It seems to lead us down the primrose path of silliness. So we decided it would be great to share our stories of foolishness so that we could all commiserate and celebrate our silliness together. So, since we are big believers in the idea that, well, we're silly, why don't we start with our own stories? Mr. Denny, what you got for us? I guess I call my story the arrogance of Batch 512 because uh, you figure when you've brewed that much, you know what's going on and you can kind of do it without thinking about it. And I made the discovery that that's not necessarily the case. It was a case of doing something that I don't normally do and then not paying attention to what I was doing. 99% of the time, I brew five and a half gallon batches, but I needed to make some rye IPA to take up to the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference. And I hadn't made any for myself for a long time, so I decided I was going to make a double batch, 11 gallons. That meant I couldn't use the equipment that I normally do, specifically my kettle, because it was too small. So I pulled out my uh, converted 15-gallon uh, keg for uh, a kettle and decided I would just pump the water into the mash tun instead of gradually ladling it in like I usually do. Uh, I should have taken notice when I crushed my grain and I looked down and it just didn't look crushed well enough, but I figured, what the heck, uh, maybe I don't remember what it's supposed to look like. Uh, the mill is set the same, uh, so let's just go with it. I uh, got mashed in and uh, let the mash sit, and as I went to uh, run it off, I decided that before I did that, I would check my thermometer calibration and discovered that my brewing thermometer was reading 30 degrees high, so I'd been mashing at 123 degrees. Did a quick calibration on that, heated up my sparge water to boiling, and I figured I'd add that and let it sit for about 20 minutes, uh, hopefully getting a little bit more conversion out of it. Uh, I did that. Uh, looked like uh, I was right at about uh, 155 degrees or so. That was good. Then I discovered that my thermometer had actually been miscalibrated again, and I was reading 10 degrees low. 
At that point, I said, screw it, ran off into my boil kettle, and of course, I was so flustered, I didn't take a pre-boil gravity reading where I could have added DME. Went through the whole boil, being frustrated by uh, my gravity being about 20 points low. Got all done, thought, okay, at least as a reward to the end of this hellacious brew day, I get to whip in my jaded chiller and be done with this turd in about five minutes. Unfortunately, when I went to put my jaded chiller into that converted keg, I discovered that the opening hadn't been cut big enough, so I was back to my old chiller and half an hour waiting to chill. Uh, the beer did end up about 20 points low. It tasted like uh, an extremely bitter pale ale. The only thing that really saved it was that uh, I had the Pico here, and I whipped out a batch of Rye IPA on my Pico from the Little Ripa kit. And by blending that in with the uh, supposed rye IPA I was making, it actually makes a darn good beer. Uh, the other upside to the story is that a week later, I jumped back on the horse, brewed again in the normal way that I'm used to, and uh, made a perfectly delicious batch, five and a half gallons of the rye IPA recipe. So there you go. Uh, my moral is pay attention, dummy. Well, I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, you, you kind of went outside to muscle memory. I think, you know, as we all brew and we keep doing these things, we start relying so much on muscle memory and not, you know, so much like thinking about everything that we're doing. Yeah, that's, and you just that's true, caught. you know, and uh, when I'm when I'm really in the groove of brewing, and I, 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 because I'm so busy these days, I hadn't actually brewed for a couple months. And normally when I'm in the groove of brewing regularly, I can get done brewing and go man, that was so smooth. I wonder if I forgot something. And I almost never have. This time I just kind of went, okay, I assume everything's going to be fine and didn't check it and nothing was fine. <laughs> well, fortunately you got back on the horse. Yeah, and, I did. And made I did. And that turned side. out great. So, so, so how about you? What, what have you done that's nearly that dumb? Oh, I've done a bunch of really <laughs> stupid things in the past. Uh, after all, I am me. So that's just going to happen. But I wanted to tell two stories today that were really all about what I think might be the most magical seasoning you can ever add to beer. Blood. That's right. Blood. Ew, yuck. Yeah. So I've had two instances where things have turned awfully bloody on a brew day. First one was actually when I was first starting to learn how to brew. You remember I've told people in the past I went around to brew with a lot of other people. And one of the people I went to go brew with was an uh, ex-army guy who invited me over to his house to come brew. And he said, yeah, come on over in the morning. We'll brew. We'll make a batch of beer. We'll have some fun. We'll smoke some ribs. This is where I learned that morning is a relative term. So I'm a computer guy. I got to his house at 9 a.m. went, hey, look, see, look at me. I'm good. I'm here. I'm, it's morning. I'm here early. Yeah, <laughs> not to an ex-army guy. <laughs> 9 a.m. is uh, late. So I show up, roll up to his house. He's out in front with his mill uh, spread out on a giant tarp. And he's got his hand with a big wrapping of well, paper towels. And he's holding it above his head and asked him what had happened. And it turned out he got so impatient waiting for me because uh, computer programmers are lazy morning turds that he went to go mill the grain so that it would be ready when I got there. And his mill is motorized with these two big pulleys and a belt between them. And it got jammed up and he went and twanged the belt with his with his hand. And when he did, the belt slipped 
because the motor was on <sighs> and took it right up into the big pulley and Yuck. sliced off the tip of his finger. Yeah, but instead of deciding that he was going to go to the ER because after all, all they were going to do was make him hold his hand, hand above his head and bandage it, he just did it himself and waited for me. And so in the meanwhile, we're looking at this pile of grain that's been milled and you can see around the tarp some little flecks of blood here and there. I don't think any part of the finger actually made it into the beer. But uh, he just took a look around and he said, well, I guess you're brewing this batch of beer single-handedly. <laughs> and single-handedly uh, it was, at least for him, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it turned out, you know, we did the whole brew day. We smoked some ribs. We had some barbecue. And it was a good brew day. And we made a fantastic beer that I called Summer Bloody Summer. <laughs> that I've never quite been able to replicate uh, the exact same Just way. as well, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, and then the second one was me being my usual klutzy self, I had just gotten a brand new 26-gallon kettle. It's the same one I still use right now. Bought it with the proceeds from the first book I wrote, uh, the Everything Homebrewing book, which is still available in Kindle format. Uh, and sitting there was brewing at the house I was running at the time, which was an old house built in like 1920. It had this garage, standalone garage, with a big, heavy wooden door with metal clips that reinforced it and tie bars. And, of course, being an old garage door in a, in a rental house, it didn't quite work. And so if you wanted to hold the garage door open, you actually had to prop it up with this big metal pole. Yeah, yeah. It's obvious. You can see where this is going. Yeah, I was brewing. My friend went uh, out to the store to go get some extra ingredients because I'd forgotten something. I was making a big, nice stout to celebrate this new kettle. And I was just sitting there tooling around, doing my thing. Just walked over, checked the boil kettle. The boil kettle was right next to the pipe. Rookie mistake. And she's coming back. And as that's happening, I turn around to check on something and knock uh -oh. the pole out the back of my foot as I'm spinning. It's a classical dance move. And then the second part was gravity hurts because uh, gravity took that door straight right down onto my head. Metal clip hit me in the back of the skull and took me straight to the dirt. My friend is scrambling to get up over the gate because she can't actually unlatch it because she's not tall enough. And... Just finally sat up and walked over and opened the gate and, well, proceeded to put a nice pack on the back of my head and kept kept brewing and, oddly <laughs> enough, had a beer, nursed that for a while. Uh, and, oh, man. You know, that beer turned out fantastic. Oh, that was the bloody head stout. Isn't that, isn't that the way it goes? Oh, it's completely the way it goes. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to try and get yeah, another concussion or make that. that beer again. Yeah, but that's okay, what happens. Okay, man. And just to prove that uh, it can happen to anybody, uh, I sat down and had a little chat with AHA director Gary Glass about his brew day disasters. So let's listen to that right now. Okay, Gary. So uh, even even the director of the AHA could have a bad brew day, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you brew for long enough or, or short enough <laughs> time frame, you're you're going to have disasters. I, of course, my first first brew uh, was a total disaster. Um, I, th I mean, this was back in, I think, 1993. Um, and uh, so I was, I was brewing on my stovetop and in my, uh, my first apartment uh, as a college student. And I was just using one of the pots that we had, mm -hmm. which was not nearly big enough. <laughs> like, I had no idea what was, I mean, I had re read probably the first chapter of The Complete Joy of Homebrewing, and that was, that was the extent <laughs> of my knowledge of, of homebrewing. And it's not like a whole lot of people were doing it at that time. So um, I, I just I had a canned malt extract kit, 
mixed it with some water probably had like an inch or so on uh -oh. the on the top and just massive boil over uh you know thankfully that was a rented apartment so you know the for the rest of the time being the time that we stayed there you you could smell malt extract burning oh, every single time you use the stovetop but um, i was only there for you know a few months more did you get your deposit back as far as i know i don't know i, I don't <laughs> I, 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 we cleaned it up so you couldn't see it <laughs> you could just kind of smell it huh? yeah you just you could smell it uh, so that that's kind of your your typical story. I, I have a, I have a better one that uh, um, I was I was uh, uh, brewing at my house in in Sunshine, Colorado, which is just uh, just a little ways west of Boulder. Uh, I had I had a roommate who was also a home brewer, and and he had a, a counterflow wort chiller. I had never used a counterflow wort chiller before, mm -hmm. uh, so I was making a, a, what was supposed to be a Maybach. And uh, so I, I'd, I'd gone through the whole process, getting down to, to chilling it. So I was running the, the word out through the through this counterflow chiller. I took a temperature measurement, it was right on. So I had my yeast already in the, the carboy. I was transferring it in, and then I started cleaning some stuff up. And uh, you know, probably about oh, halfway full, looked back, and I can see vapor coming out of the top of the, <laughs> the carboy. That's Probably not good. Not right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it was doing a ten-gallon batch, so I managed to to get the the temperature corrected. But obviously, I'd cooked the yeast in that first carboy, um, and then transferred over to the, you know, the the second carboy with the. So, so what ended up happening was, uh, you know, this the first carboy was way too hot. I had put it in a, mm. a water bath, uh, in in the bathroom in the in the tub. Uh, <laughs> to, to let it cool down. The other, the, the other five gallons was fine, uh, so that fermented out as a lager. Um, I happened to have some, you know, s strong Belgian yeast. Uh, so, like the next day, I would realize like there's just no way that right. this is gonna come out. I just pitched that uh, that Belgian yeast into the other that that first five gallons. Came out great, actually. That <laughs> the Belgian version was was even better than the than the um, the Maybach version and what came out and completely accidental. But uh, you know, just just goes to show, like no matter what, how right. badly you screw up, you know, there's still a chance. That's why that's why we always say malted barley wants to become beer. Yeah, yeah. Now the exception to that would be I I, I, I can't remember what the style of beer I was making, but I did I scorched the mash once. And uh, that that flavor does not come out. No, that's and it's, true. You know, it's it's not a good smoke. It's, a, <laughs> it's like yeah, kind of that ashtray licking. Like, all right, this is just horrible. <laughs> and, and you you got to yeah. give it up and, and just dump that sucker. Some, sometimes that's all you can do. Yeah, you know, you just have to admit defeat, uh -huh. no matter how badly you want. I mean, I hear people who say, "Well, when I make a bad batch, I need to punish myself by drinking it." <laughs> No. No, 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 <laughs> no, there's no. Get rid of it. Uh-huh, yeah, or another thing you can do is, uh, um, I, I, had, I had a batch of beer that, uh, that had, so, I, had some kind of like phenol thing going on, and so um, I, I bought some, uh, I think it was like the Bragg's uh, cider vinegar. Yeah. Just took, the, took that, dumped it in, and I made malt vinegar out of it. 
Now, it wasn't good tasting malt vinegar, but um, it's full strength vinegar, mm -hmm. which means it's a it's a really good organic uh, herbicide. So you can use it on you can use it on weeds and things like that. So, and so other than just dumping the beer on your lawn, you can make weed killer. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, it's amazing what you can do with with, with bad beer. Cool. All right. So there's Gary with his uh, brew day disaster stories and serendipitous recoveries. <laughs> <laughs> that was Gary's story, and uh, you know he had serendipity on his side because his screw up actually turned into a great beer. You know, I, I guess that's why he's the AHA director, huh? Yeah, sometimes it just takes a little luck, it, but at least for him, he can recreate that because I know he's gone on to do uh, yeah, you know, right, Wallace and, several and times the Belgian now. version too. So we have a phone message from our Igor Eric Pierce about his terrible, horrible, very bad brew day. So uh, let's play that now. Hi there, this is Eric Pierce from Framingham, Massachusetts, and here is the story of my most spectacular brewing failure. Okay, so a couple of months ago, I was out on the deck brewing Drew's Israel Bissell New England IPA on my version of Denny's Cheap and Easy All-Grain Brewing System. I was down to the last two gallons of sparge water, and it was getting late. I just can't seem to get an early start these days. But Anyway, I had the cooler positioned on top of my gas grill, which has a nice flat top, and the height provides good gravity feed to my kettle. And instead of bringing the cooler down from its perch and dealing with it on the deck, I, in my infinite wisdom, decided it would be more expedient to just hoist the HLT with two gallons full of 170-degree water up and just dump it in there. Well, the next thing I knew, the potholder slipped and the HLT slammed against the cooler, and yep, over the side of the deck it went, eight feet down, crashing under the ground, grain flying everywhere. What happened next is best described as the F-bomb heard round the neighborhood. <laughs> After this horrible thinking feeling subsided, I was thinking, well, what do I do now? I'm two gallons shy of a batch. I could just add some water and reach the target gravity and cut my losses. Or I remembered I had some leftover bags of hard-as-a-rock dried malt extract and a pound of amber Belgian candy lying around. So with the help of some brewing software and my trusty refractometer... I nailed the target gravity and volume. I probably should have mentioned from the start that this story also involves my uh, most spectacular comeback. <laughs> Everything else uh, with the brewing process went fine, and in the end, it turns out this spectacular failure became one of my all-time favorite home brews. Great recipe, Drew. And, Danny, you'll be happy to know that the cooler survived with hardly a scratch. On a final note, with this being a New England IPA, appearance matters. Half of the DME and the candy syrup... I added was amber, and the SRM went from what was supposed to be about five to more like eight. Hmm, a juicy IPA, the color of a Mai Tai? Oh, yeah. And that's the story of how the Mai Tai PA was born, never to be brewed the same way again. So, uh, I guess Eric got a lesson in gravity, huh? Yeah, gravity. It's not just a suggestion. It's the law. <laughs> and what was great was looking through the disaster stories that we got from uh, all of our listeners. You know, we got a bunch of emails and a bunch of forum threads about this. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of brewers out there who need to remember that fact about gravity. You know, gravity will not be denied. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. No matter what you do, it's still there, ready to kick you in the butt. Yeah, so we had uh, one come in from uh, Dan Fiorelli. We had one come in from Dan Fiorelli. So I had a rather painful brewing disaster, mentally scarring, but not physically scarring, thankfully. Uh, a few months ago, I was trying to make my favorite style, a Hellas, my second attempt at a lager after a Dortmunder. It's such a delicious style that I can drink all day. 
So I decided to build a recipe and give it a shot. Brew day, aka when the fit hit the shan, started brewing like normally would, uh, get all the gear together, set it up, start the strike water. He's going to batch sparge it, do everything else. And he decided that he was going to put his cooler, his nice rectangular cooler based on the Denicon design on his newly completed patio wall. And he says, not my best idea, but far from my worst or so I thought. I decided I'd gotten practice enough at brewing and decided to reward myself with a beer, something I don't usually do and now won't do until cleanup. I, I get my uh -oh. mash started, hit my temperature spot on. It's going so well at this point. And now we fast forward to the runoff. He says, I start my first runnings and hit a nice 1087 to start. Very nice gravity. I taste the runnings. It's delicious. We all agree this is going to be a damn fine beer. So I turn around to check my sparge wire temperature and I hear crash. I see my buddy turn white and run inside. Turns out he was grabbing me another beer because of what he saw. My effing mash tun <laughs> fell off the damn wall that was wider than my mash tun. Uh, this is the aftermath. So he says, I chug my beer, sit down to figure out what to do and say, whatever. Uh, gravity was high enough that he figured he'd dilute it down to get to a decent enough gravity and adjusted everything, adjusted his hop, uh, hop additions, fermented and got everything else. It says, since I will never be able to reproduce the fall of beer, it of course turned out into one of the best beers I've ever made. All in all, it could have been worse <laughs> if someone got hurt or worse. I didn't get the first runnings done. Plus, I got an awesome name for my Hellas recipe. Humpty Dumpty Hellas. <laughs> That's great, man. Our next brew day almost disaster comes from Dave Ruffino in Rhode Island with better safe than dead of carbon monoxide. And I have to agree with that. My brewing disaster happened just over a year ago. Late January of 2016 in New England, we got our first big snowstorm of the year. What better to do on a snow day than brew an extract batch? And one day before, we had just installed a new stovetop with a 22,000 BTU burner. Of course, my first thought was, I bet I could boil a batch of beer on there. About 15 minutes into boiling an extract Pliny the Elder clone, my carbon monoxide monitor started beeping. I turned off the boil, opened some windows, waited a bit, and tried again. Same result. I made the decision that staying alive is more important than brewing. Good thinking, yeah. Dave. So I shut everything down. As I had only put in half the extract and the 90-minute hop edition, I put my kettle and remaining extract, which was in a Ziploc Mylar bag, out on my porch. Plan was to finish outside tomorrow. About 7 a.m. the next morning, I look outside and see about four pounds of LME spilled all over my tile floor on a 20-degree morning. <laughs> what ensued were many curse words, including my favorite... Uh, I'm going to spare myself a beep. <laughs> Turns out the stove was installed properly, but my carbon monoxide monitors were old, needed replacing, and were too close to my brew area. They were triggered due to the steam in the air. My old stove created a lot of steam, but nothing like this new powerful stove. Cheers and shout out to my club, Rhode Island Brewing Society. So, uh, you know, I... There's an important uh, point right there. If you're using safety devices, make sure you use them correctly. Yeah, I was going to say the the thing about steam and smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors is steam really does interfere to the point where I, I had one in my kitchen for a while and that thing never shut up. And finally, it was like a friend of mine who actually knows all this came in and said, no, 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 that's the wrong place to put that thing. So we ended up moving it and I haven't had a problem with it since. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I, I would agree. Dave made the wise choice. Brewing. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, if you have safety equipment and it starts warning you, pay attention, please. Indeed. Now, of course, 
we deal a lot with burning things and fiery things, so naturally we have to have a story here about things catching fire. And this one comes from Jason James, and I'm calling this one, This Blanket's on Fire. So I've had my fair share of brew day disasters, but my recent fudge up, hmm, that's a nice one, uh, came during a brew preparation. For Christmas, I got a 30-gallon aluminum pot for brewing. I will save the aluminum versus stainless steel debate for another time, yes. On Christmas Day, after a day full of merriment, cheer, and homebrew, I decided it was a good idea to oxidize my pot around midnight. Never a good idea to do anything around midnight. I light my burner and have water in the pot ready to boil. I typically brew on my back deck and keep an eye on things during brew days. It was taking longer than I'd hoped to get the wire to a boil, so my drunken brain decides to put an old quilt on top of the lid to hold in the heat. This is why midnight's a bad idea to do things. Fast forward about 20 minutes later when I forgot that I have said pot of water on an open flame with my blanket insulation, I run out to a blazing fire. The blanket is burning and has melted onto my deck. I shut off the gas and grab a pair of barbecue tongs. I am able to get the flaming blanket and lid off the pot, but get three nasty burns on my arm and have the scars to prove it. The best part was when I was panicking about how to put out the fire. Then I realized I have 30 gallons of water right in front of me. A couple of scoops of water with the kitchen pot and the fire was out. When we christened this new pot, we lovingly named the first brew Smokey's Blanket because only you can prevent <laughs> blanket fires. Oh, man. Hey, you know, there is a, there is an apocryphal story about me setting my pants on fire while I was brewing one day. Uh, several people from my club were here. They, they love to tell this story. And I, I got to tell you, I did not actually set my pants on fire. But I, it was close enough that uh, I was starting to uh, feel and smell something by the time they yelled at me to move. So. <laughs> You know, that's the the result of early morning brewing. So you didn't actually set your pants on fire. You just smelled your pants on fire. Yeah, I, I, I felt the heat. I smelled the scorching, but there was no actual flame in my pants, uh, so to speak. Well, I feel sorry for your wife. Um. <laughs> so do I sometimes. <laughs> Okay, we've got one more burn story here. Actually, we've got a lot more, but uh, we can't get them all in today. We'll probably like sprinkle the rest of these into uh, future episodes. James Morgan from New Zealand uh, with a story we're calling, I don't think he's getting his security deposit back. The story goes, this was in Dunedin in New Zealand, which is a student town, so mild stupidity tends to run a little rampant from time to time. Ooh, college students. <laughs> yeah, imagine college students. For my first three-vessel all-grain brew day, I moronically decided to do a double decoction mashed pilsner. Hey. At this stage, I've been brewing about 18 months, maybe a year, and uh, those were brew-in-a-bag batches. So in the process of the brew day, I scorched the bottom of the pot twice, burned my hand, not seriously, just enough to really ruin my day, and to top it all off, melted part of the linoleum floor as I placed the pot on the floor after I got my hand. Oh, man. The kicker is that I forgot to account for boil-off. That brew day sucked. Lessons learned. Decoctions suck. How to hide melted linoleum in a rental. There is no polishing a turd of a beer, but friends will appreciate the free beer. So uh, my guess is that uh, James probably did his first and only decoction mash that day. Yeah, I'm guessing because, man, that's just one of those days. Just like uh, your arrogance of batch five, uh, 500. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, where you just start to try and do something new and 
man, your brain just doesn't uh, jibe with it at the time. Yeah, right. And I, I do have uh, a bit of a concern that it sounds like maybe uh, James was brewing indoors, and hopefully he wasn't using propane to do that. Oh, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that was probably a stovetop, you know, with the benefit of the doubt. Well, he said it was a three-vessel brew system. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Well, maybe it was electric. Uh, or not. I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> okay, anyway, anyway, uh, to prevent another disaster story, do not brew inside with propane, please. Yes, please. Uh, and, you know, also, like I said, we're not kidding. We have a number of stories in here, and we'll read more of these uh, at a later time, that are all about burning. Please yeah. be careful. Be careful, people. Be careful. There's dangerous stuff going on. Uh, and uh, I would also say that we also need to get into the other big one, because we also had a couple of these stories where equipment was failing, and, well... The most notorious piece of equipment that will fail for homebrewers is the glass carboy. Yeah. And so this one comes from Joe Morris. And like I said, one of the many stories that we had involving the dangers of glass it says it is a perfect Friday afternoon to brew a beer that I've been planning uh, for months. Uh, 10 gallons of Doppelbach in the spirit of Celebrator, dark, rich, smooth. I've been building up enough yeast over months of Pilsner brewing. And I'm ready to go. This beer is so big. I have to build a larger mash tun just to accommodate the grist. The plan is for half the beer to go into a keg to sit until fall. The other half is going to go into a bourbon barrel that has already hosted some stouts. Brew day comes and I hit every number. Mash, pH, flow rates, everything is a dream. This is usually actually when I start to get concerned. Yeah, right. I run off the beer, aerate, take samples, pitch yeast, lovely. After a long day, it's midnight now. I walk Carboy 1 over to the fridge, set up temperature control, perfect. Pick up Carboy 2, take two steps, slip on a wet spot, fumble the carboy twice, and helplessly watch it crash to the floor. Oh, no. Yeah. Not only do I lose five-plus gallons of delicious beer and smash a $40 glass carboy, I now have to stay up past 1 a.m. cleaning five-plus gallons of beer off my garage floor, and most of the morning, too. Silver lining, I still have five gallons for the barrel, but I'll always miss the five gallons I never got to drink. And Joe got incredibly lucky because I can't tell you the number of those stories that happen where people talk about their carboys breaking and they end up in the ER. Yeah, with multiple stitches. My my experience that got me off of glass was that uh, back in the days when I was experimenting with uh, decoctions, I had made 10 gallons of a double decocted pilsner and put it into two glass carboys. I was uh, moving them around in my garage and let me tell you that I have uh, indoor outdoor carpet on my uh, uh, garage floor to try and help cushion things a bit. Um, and I accidentally tapped one carboy with the other one and stood there helplessly watching 10 gallons of my double decocted Pilsner run down the drain in the center of my garage floor. It was at that point that I switched to buckets and I have never looked back. <laughs> well, and I have one, uh, people who listen to the cream ale episode will know that one of the first cream ales that I did was with, my friend Bruce and we used kick cereal on it. Well, one of the carboys I took home, I had below the chest freezer. I'd pulled it out of the chest freezer to do some manipulation. I was going to rack it. And at the same time, that was the day I received a brand new firearm for me, a, a brand new 1903 a3 Springfield. Okay. Brand new to me. And I dis I was disassembling the rifle on the, the chest freezer top above where I had the carboy and I pulled the bolt and was examining the gun. And I thought I'd put the bolt down so it wasn't going to roll. And all I hear is I hear this roof sound, you know, that sound of metal moving. And I looked down just in time to see the bolt 
roll off the top of the chest freezer. I don't know how this was physically possible. Roll oh, off the top yeah. of the chest freezer and slow motion. <laughs> it's always in slow motion, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Try and get my hand under it, but it just hit the top of the shoulder of the of this five gallon cardboard that I had of full of cream ale. Crack. Bolt falls to the floor. And five gallons of cream ale come rushing out of the side of the carboy all over the carpet in my apartment. Needless to say, that carpet was bad shape after that. And I learned a very important (laughs) lesson. Guns and beer do not mix, even when you're sober. Yeah, (laughs) for many reasons, huh? Yeah. So uh, Doug Williams from Staten Island with Making It Rain, he says, I live in New York City, Staten Island to be specific, and at the time of the story in an apartment. My wife and child were going out for the day. So what better time to do a double brew day? Now, by the way, also a good number of our stories were all, oh, my wife and kids were out, so I decided to brew. <laughs> hmm. This may be why men don't live very long. All right. My first brew yeah. went as smooth as could be. I was in the zone, fired up the next one, cleaning and multitasking as I went along. Second round is going well. I start to relax. Attention starting to wander. I'm now at the point where I'm just waiting for the boil. Start filling my carboy to sanitize it and go to the other room to grab something. Get distracted with something on the internet. No, that never happens. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And pretty much forget about what I left running in the kitchen. And then I start to hear splashing. Oh. And it hits me, and I run into the kitchen, and there is water everywhere, just flying out of the top of the carboy. I shut the water off and grab as many towels as I can, and just then my kettle starts to boil seconds later. Bang, bang, bang on my middle apartment door. <laughs> downstairs, I'm on the fifth floor. Sure enough, it was my downstairs neighbor. In her heavy New York accent, what the f- it's raining in my kitchen. I'm in panic mode. She thinks a pipe <laughs> broke. I tell her I was cleaning and dropped a bucket of water. She then tells me to let my wife f***ing clean and runs off. So then I have to finish my brew. So I start my hop additions. She comes back up and demands I come downstairs and see it. So then I have to kill the stove because as my luck was going, the last thing I needed to do was burn the place down. <laughs> so $400 later, she has a freshly painted kitchen ceiling. Yeah. I, and I learned a hard lesson of paying attention. Thankfully, it wasn't too long after we rented an apartment and bought a house because every brew after that was pretty scary. Yeah, well, see, man, now it's your house and you have to fix it no matter what. You can't blame it on the landlord anymore. Well, yeah, but at least you don't have the neighbors swearing at you. Mm-hmm. I, I think the worst that's ever happened to me is the neighbors called the cops on me thinking I'm making meth. Uh, and, you know, this is not the only story of uh, somebody uh, forgetting to pay attention and uh, letting something uh, overfill and uh, spill all over the place. So. There, there's a lesson for yeah. you. So, in other words, uh, out of so, these brewing disasters, I think we can have a couple of common lessons. Uh, glass carboys suck. Pay attention to things. Blood is a pretty good uh, flavoring agent. You need to pay attention when you brew or you'll set yourself on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all this does come back to the reason why I think both Denny and I, and I think a number of experienced brewers, have rules about uh, when exactly do we start drinking during the brew day? Yeah, right. After it's done. And for me, it's after it's in the boil and everything's sanitized. Yeah, so. right. Okay, well, we hope you enjoyed these uh, brew day disaster stories for April Fool's Day. And believe it or not, we have a lot more of them here. So we'll uh, we'll toss them into future episodes occasionally uh, so we can all get a chuckle out of somebody else's misfortune while we sympathize and empathize with them. Exactly. And reinforce those safety lessons. Remember, only you can prevent fooling brewer stories. (laughs) That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will get back to the old Q&A. Stick around. 
Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It is time for Q&A part two. We went through a whole bunch of different categories last time. And uh, we still have a whole bunch of questions left, so we'll probably throw in some of these into the future, too. But for today, we're going to start with some questions about recipes and styles. And the first one goes to Drew. All right, and this one comes from uh, Mark Bowman, who emailed us and said, Hello, Drew. I, you mentioned uh, the beer, and he's talking about the uh, cookie celebration ale that we talked about in the earlier episode of the podcast when we were talking about my dear beloved cookie. I uh, you mentioned the beer has a cinnamon flavor to it, but you didn't mention cinnamon in the recipe. Can you shed some light on this? Also want to hear your thoughts on adding the raisins to, or raisin rum tincture to packaging. Boiling raisins for 60 minutes kind of freaked me out some, but stoked to brew and drink this beer. It sounds awesome. Also, FYI, I have your springtime in Amarillo about ready to package. Hell yeah. All right. Well, one, springtime in Amarillo is awesome. That's the reason why I talk about that recipe. It's a great beer and it's the perfect time of year for it. All right. So on the cookie celebration, yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, did not mention any cinnamon in the recipe. So you're absolutely right. In the early batches of the beer, I didn't talk about the cinnamon because I depended upon the cinnamon for two ways. One was from the spiced rum. So the Sailor Jerry's rum that I used to soak the raisins in actually has a fairly strong cinnamon component. And then the other thing I did was I actually added a cinnamon extract and vanilla extract or tincture, the, the same variety of things I've talked about making in the past. And I did that into packaging for one of the five gallon portions of the first recipe that we did. It used a full four ounces of cinnamon tincture uh, made from four ounces of vodka and two cinnamon sticks. And I would say that that was really incredibly potent, but also funnily enough, the cinnamon added an extra sweetness to it that was already there from the kind of enhanced the sweetness that was already there from the raisins. So I would actually back off on that and probably only do about two ounces of the tincture. So I'll make sure that gets into the notes. But the other one is about the raisins. I, I really liked doing the raisins in the boil because I think it extracted more of the sugar. And I literally put the raisins in a big uh, hop bag, you know, the kind of thing that you'd put grain in or a big dose of hops and just suspended that in the boil so I could just pull them out. Now, to your idea about adding either raisins in the packaging, I wouldn't add raisins themselves, but the rum that had been soaking in the raisins was really freaking delicious. And would probably actually work pretty well. So if you didn't want to put the raisins in the boil, totally fine. You could totally use the uh, rum raisin tincture. And I think that would actually work uh, fairly well. Cool, man. Very interesting. I'm going to take the next one because it's about indigenous ingredients. And I've done a bit of that. 
and it comes from Attila in Barcelona, Spain, and I hope that uh, Attila was correct. Hey, Denny and Drew, first off, I'd like to thank you guys for the podcast, and with the new Brew Files show, we get to hear you every week. I really enjoy them, you sick man. Now to my question for the Q&A show. I live in Barcelona, Spain, and here we have many local seasonal ingredients that I would really like to try in my brewing. And I'm going to screw up some of these words, so. And he lists his examples, mushrooms, chestnuts, figs, thyme, rosemary, almonds, bitter orange, wild asparagus, and of course, calsot, calso, C-A-L-C-O-T, which is a green onion that's grown there, uh, and many, many more. However, for most of these ingredients, I have no idea how they will express themselves in a beer. So I'd like your advice on a simple but good beer recipe that allows me to test these different ingredients in different stages of the process, mash, boil, or fermenter. The recipe should be basic so that the tested ingredient can be evaluated, but also not so dull that I get sick of drinking it. I was hoping for a recipe with a simple grain bill, no step mashing, only bittering hops, and easily available dry yeast. All of this for consistency. A bit on my background in brewing. I generally brew and enjoy continental beer styles like Hefeweizen and Belgian ales. Best regards, Attila. Well, man, I got to tell you that I don't think that there is one beer that you can make to test all of those various things. There's just too much difference in them. Uh, For example, I make mushroom beers, but I adjust the beer style to complement the type of mushroom that I'm using. Uh, chanterelles in a wee heavy, matsutakis in a Belgian golden strong, portabellas in a brown ale, um, th- things like that, candy caps in a porter. So basically, you have to use a beer style that is going to complement the ingredients that you're putting in. So... I don't know if I can give you just one idea for a recipe that's going to work with everything. Uh, Mushrooms, I just told about four different things. Uh, Figs, for instance, I would want to put figs into kind of a darker beer. Uh, Thyme and rosemary, man, those could could go in either lighter or darker beers. Uh, Almonds, uh, Drew, you've made made, uh, a beer with almonds before haven't you yeah i made my saison fagola which used almonds and yeah that's what i thought yeah and that was that was a relatively pale beer yeah uh bitter orange i mean that's a classic in uh, in belgian styles and wild asparagus man i i just don't know what to tell you about that because it could have a bitterness to it to be interesting Green onions, uh, Drew and I have a rule, no alliums. <laughs> so, you know, uh, maybe maybe if you caramelize them first. But here's my, here's my rule about how to use stuff. The more of the original character you want to keep, the later you should add it to the beer. So I really prefer adding most, uh, most ingredients like this post-fermentation. Um, that way you you keep the most of the uh, character into the beer. Some of them, like uh, like bitter orange, can be boiled for the last few minutes of your boil. Uh, things like 
thyme and rosemary. Uh, obviously, if you boil them, you're going to be getting a lot more flavor out of them, so you have to be careful how much you use. Okay, jumping down to the rest of the question, no reason you can't have a recipe with a simple grain bill, but I don't think there's going to be one single recipe. No need to step mash. You only want to use bittering hops? Sure, fine. Easily available dry yeast? Well, there's uh, always the good old standbys like uh, SO4 or USO5. Uh, any of those would probably work for you, but I don't know if I would limit myself to that. Uh, I, again, I, th I think that just as when you're putting together a beer recipe without indigenous ingredients, you kind of like try to match the ingredients together to get what you're going for in your head. You also have to match those ingredients to the other stuff that you're going to use. Anything to yeah, add to and, that one? And I would say a kind of a good, a good rule of thumb here is for anything that is kind of earthy, I would tend to go with <laughs> a malt forward beer. So something like, you know, say a nice brown ale with your things mm -hmm. that are kind of like the, the herbs, like the thyme and the rosemary. I want those to go into a pale beer because I want those to be expressed. You also have to be really careful with rosemary, by the way. It's it's a very potent flavor. Uh, yeah, right. With some of the other ones, we, we talked about the, the green onions, uh, but like the asparagus, the asparagus I would also want to see actually, I think, in a pale beer as well, like a wheat beer, because I think there could be some really interesting green play off there. Yeah, possibly. That's one that I'm having a hard time imagining what it would do. Yeah. Well, and you're right, because there's going to be some bitterness, but there will also be kind of an herbal note to it. And so I kind of think that will go best up against pale. So for me, a lot of times if I'm playing around with a new flavor, it's either a brown ale for things that are kind of earthy and hearty, or it's going to be a pale wheat beer for things that are sort of more light and effervescent. And that's kind of my general rule of thumb. Yeah, and, and let me just say, too, that uh, I think that you're going to run into my process of uh, having to just make several test batches. Uh, basically, you start off by making your best guess and try the beer and uh, adjust and try it again until it comes out the way that you like. Yeah. And well, and I would also caution one other thing is that with a lot of things, you can try tinctures in order to, uh, to test it. But with, particularly with an herb like rosemary, be very careful with the tincture. It's very, very terrible. Yeah, right. Right. Add it by, add it by the half teaspoon to start yep. with. Or maybe add some. What I like to do for that kind of thing is uh, take a measured amount of beer and maybe like pour four glasses with four ounces in each one. Add a different amount of the tincture or flavoring to each one. Decide which uh, tastes the best and then scale that up to the full batch size. So sorry we didn't have a, uh, a specific answer for you there, Attila, but I hope that uh, maybe a little bit of our rambling there can give you some ideas. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, strategy. Strategy, not exactness. All right, so our next question is a Saison question, which of course means that it comes to me. Uh, this comes from uh, Richard Bachelor in, in Nottinghamshire in England. Yay. Drew, I am a homebrewer with two years of all grain experience and keen to try a Saison. I have the kit to very carefully control fermentation temperature, but not for step mashing. I am confident with the yeast starters and can source both white yeast and white labs. Could you suggest a classic Saison recipe? Nothing outrageous, but maybe with a slight edginess, funkiness, please. That is a really good example of the style as a good first brew. I bottle, boo, as I have not yet gotten into kegging. Hey, I wouldn't boo that. Saison as a, as a bottling thing is really, really tight. Uh... I'm an AHM member, so I can access their recipes on their site and in back issues of Zymergy. Uh, I am keen to try something. 
Your show is great. The curse word section always cracks me up, and Denny's loose use of the bleep. I fear that sadly we are far too PC over here in the UK for that. And it's clear that you are both doing great work for beer. Cheers. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, Richard, my go-to for sort of classic base saison is my saison ete recipe, which is in the first saison article I wrote for Zymergy, uh, which is available on uh, the HA website as a free download for everybody, not just HA members. Uh, the only changes I would make to that is that recipe has spices added to it. So I think it has orange peel, coriander, and black pepper. These days, with the amount of yeast that we have available to us and the sort of knowledge and skills that we have in terms of manipulating the yeast characters, I wouldn't bother with the spices. So exact same recipe base, and we'll put this on the website um, and have it linked. The exact same recipe base, but with no spices. And then I, if you can get both the Y-East 3724 and the White Labs 565 and pitch both of them, I think that would be your best shot. If you want something with a bit of Brett character, I would say take it into a secondary. It's going to be one of the few times I'm ever going to say that. Pitch a little bit of Brett, and again, you have uh, Y-East and White Labs, or get something from like Phantome and take the slurry out of Phantome or out of even DuPont and add that into the secondary with a little bit of wort or a little bit of sugar, depending upon what you have available, and then let that age and then go into the bottles and you'll be a very happy camper. Cool. Sounds good to me, man. Our next question comes from Greg Herpel, who writes, Hi, Denny and Drew. I started listening to your podcast after the new year, and I think the show is very entertaining and educational. You guys rock. Well, we try, Greg. Thanks. I've started paying closer attention to my efficiencies, and my last batch measured out to a 65% brew house efficiency. I'm looking to adjust my grain bill for the next batch as many recipes are 75% based and online forums seem to be divided on how to make these adjustments. One group says to adjust only the base malts and the other group says to adjust all the grains in the mash. I was wondering what the two of you usually do to make these kinds of recipe adjustments and what your reasoning is behind the method. Also, if you only adjust base malts, what do you usually do with darker base malts, such as Munich? Thanks, Greg Herpel. Well, Greg, I am one of the outliers in this because I like to adjust all the malts in the recipe equally. I do a lot of my recipes based on percentages of malts, so my feeling is that if I only adjust the base malt, then I'm throwing off all the percentages of the other malts. Uh, it seems to work for me, and that's what I do, and I'm sticking to it. How about you, Drew? What do you do? Uh, you know, for the most part, I tend to just scale uh, everything unless it's a big scale. Uh, so if I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, in his case, he's going up 10 percentage points. I don't think that's going to be that much of an impact. But no, like, uh -uh. I will do it like if, if I'm trying to go, say, volumetric scaling, and I'm going from you know, a five gallon or a 10 gallon batch all the way up to something like three barrels or more barrels, then I, I will start to independently scale the uh, base malt uh, instead of scaling everything linearly. Because I do think that right. when you start to move up into those higher ranges of scaling, you really do start to see compounding that happens with your specialty malts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, and I, I see what you're saying and if if I got something that uh, 
suddenly put me up into the three pounds of black patent for a recipe, then I would certainly look at uh, maybe not scaling that up. But uh, in general, yeah, I, I think I'm like you, and I like to just keep my percentages the way they have been. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I, I think some of this is overthinking it, but yeah. I, ultimately you are going to have to come down to the fact that, like, yeah, some of these malts, particularly your roasted malts, don't need the same uh, scale level because really what you're getting out of those right. is color. Right, right. Okay, we got one more question left here in the uh, recipe and style section, and it comes from Adam in New Zealand, and it's all your All right, so Adam says, good day, Denny and Drew. Good day, Adam. I'll start as, uh, as seems to be tradition with a thank you. I really enjoy your podcast and appreciate the time you both must put into them. I suspect there are many late nights spent squinting into a glowing computer screen. You can feel assured it is time well spent. Well, thank you. Down here in New Zealand, I listen to the podcast while I drive to work, and always look forward to your next episode coming online. My question for you both is around adding sugar to homebrew. I often read questions on forums where homebrewers lament their beers finishing with a higher gravity than anticipated, or others where there is concern that a high mash temperature might lead to a sweeter than desired final product. Advice often given is to add sugar to the beer to dry it out. And now here's the crux of the question. Can adding sugar dry a beer out? My theory is that adding sugar to a beer that is in progress will increase the alcohol, but will do nothing to remove residual sugars. It will still have a high final gravity. However, substituting sugar for a malt in a recipe before brewing it will dry it out, as you are replacing an ingredient that will contribute unfermentable sugars with one that is completely fermentable. Am I right here, or am I missing something? Will adding sugar to a beer that has finished with a high OG in some way dry it out, or does it simply get you plastered quicker so you don't notice the cloying sweetness as long? Cheers, fellas. Adam. <laughs> well, okay. Adam, thanks uh, Thanks for your kind words. We appreciate it. You're right. There are many hours spent editing. More by me than Denny, ironically, since I'm slow. Uh, <laughs> what, what can we say? Yeah, and I usually do mine early in the morning instead of late at there you night. Go. He, yeah, so he has lots of coffee. Uh, so I will say right now, I agree with you. Uh, your assertion about that adding sugar to a beer that is not fermenting out is not going to actually dry it out. You're right. I mean, it adds alcohol. Unless you're adding a ton of alcohol, I don't think you're going to make a noticeable impact on the final body. And then you also have to deal with the fact that ethanol itself actually carries a sweetness to it, particularly when you get into higher amounts of it. So you're kind of getting ethanol sweetness and some burn, but you still got that big cloying sweetness behind it. And, and to give you an idea about what I mean by scaling the gravity, a friend of mine has a beer that he calls uh, the black wine, and that beer starts off with a gravity of about 1150. So it's a massive beer and it usually will stop fermenting around 1050 and it tastes just fine, even though it's got a high residual gravity to it. There isn't anything else that I think you can do to it. Uh, but yeah, trying to add sugar to say like a 1070 beer that isn't fermenting out and hoping that that's somehow going to magically fix your, your body. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it works at all. Uh, what I do think it does is it wakes the yeast back up and makes the yeast do some fermentation. And if you're lucky, maybe that will take out some more of your residual sweetness. But if you're already at that point, your beer's got problems, your yeast probably have problems. So I would usually actually suggest the other course of action, which is actually adding more yeast. Adding more yeast isn't going to work too well if you have a lot of unfermentables in there. But I mean, I think I think the problem is most people, most people look at their fermentations stopping and assume that they have unfermentables in there without really knowing it. So... Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's a perfect time to try the fast yep. ferment yep. test, 
where you pull a little wort, add a whole crap load of yeast to it. It can be bread yeast. It can be whatever yeast you have around. And the idea is that you want to see if you've reached the limit of fermentability of that wort or not. And if you add a whole bunch of yeast and the wort in your fast ferment test um, ferments further, then you know that adding more yeast to your main batch will actually help. But if you don't get any further fermentation out of your fast ferment test, then it doesn't make any difference how much yeast you throw into that fermenter of beer. It's not going to do anything. Right. Uh, indeed. And yeah, I, the fast fermentation test is, you know, one of the reasons why I actually keep a stir plate around because that's the super ideal conditions. You know, a little bit of work in a vessel with a stir bar in it, a metric ton of yeast, and then let it, uh, let it whirl. Now, remember if your fast fermentation test shows a terminal gravity of say like 10, 10, your regularly fermented beer isn't going to reach that same gravity because you've just optimized all the conditions for maximum attenuation. Right. right. So, yeah. but yeah, uh, for adding sugar to a beer, not going to help unless you're right in the recipe development phase and you're actually pulling out, you know, mash components and putting in sugar, that will definitely lead to a drier component. That's what a triple is or a Belgian strong golden. Yeah. And what I just want to say too, is that you're, you're pretty much right that, uh, adding sugar to a beer that's fermenting away may reduce the final gravity or, or the body of the beer rather a bit. I don't know if it will actually reduce the final gravity because you're adding more fermentables, but it may reduce the body a bit. Best way to do it is try and anticipate it and uh, replace some of the fermentables early on with sugar and that will take care of things. So, it's time for a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll answer some questions about water and brewing. So stick around, listen to the music, and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. All right, it makes up 90 to 95% of your favorite beverage, or maybe if you're one of our friends like Fred Bonjour, it makes up 80% of your favorite beverage, <laughs> but it's water. Water, that magical stuff that fish do things in, and that, well, I guess we have to live with. But, you know, uh, we have questions about water that always seem to come in. But now, the problem is I'm not very good at water, so I'm just going to have to sit back here and let Mr. Dincenzo uh, answer these questions about water. So, Denny, how about you do it? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm I'm far from a water expert, but I, I've played around enough and asked Martin Brungard enough questions so that uh, I'm going to try and uh, play a water expert on the podcast. Our first question comes from Gus, 
And Gus says, hello, I'm really loving both of the shows you're putting out. It's a great listen, very interesting, and I trust you guys know what you're talking about. Oh, Gus, I'm so sorry, man. Uh, Because you've been doing it for so long, so I appreciate that. I live about 40 minutes from Wisconsin where I'm able to get that sweet, sweet New Glarus spotted cow. Grab some every time I pass through. I've recently yeah, that's been pre-mail exper- for those of you who don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good beer, too. A really good beer. Uh, I've recently been experimenting with water profiles for an American Amber Ale. I'm currently starting with the Chicago water profile and then going to switch to different water profiles to figure out which profile brings out the characteristics I'm looking for. I've read about sulfate to chloride ratios and how chloride affects how round a mouthfeel and sweetness, but not to exceed 200 parts per million. Sulfate accentuates hot bitterness perception and should not exceed 250 parts per million. Here's the Chicago water profile, and he's got uh, 34 ppm of calcium, uh, 11 of magnesium, 6 of sodium, 25 sulfate, uh, chloride is 11, and bicarbonate is 106. I'm curious what your take is on this water profile and what your experiences are for a good amber ale. Thanks a bunch, and I'm loving both shows. Hope to meet you all someday. Okay, you'll say, guess, we'll, you'll say that until you actually meet us. Yeah, right. I mean, you, people you know, think they want to meet me, and then they do. Well, anyway, Gus, I would say that the only red flag I really see there is your bicarbonate level being kind of high at 106. And uh, that's going to be something you'll probably need to neutralize with, uh, with acid. Uh, I use lactic acid. A lot of people use phosphoric. I think lactic is a little bit easier to use. Some people are worried about a taste threshold with it, but uh, I have not run into that uh, situation. You mentioned sulfite to chloride ratios, and I have really found that ratios are kind of meaningless. Uh, It's the numbers that really, really matter. You're absolutely right that adding chloride will kind of increase the sweetness and uh, a rounder mouthfeel. Sulfates, you know, have always been said to increase the perception of bitterness. Martin uh, puts it that uh, they aid in a drying finish, and I think that that's maybe a more accurate description. Your uh, sodium and magnesium numbers are just absolutely fine. Uh, As a matter of fact, your sodium is low enough so that uh, if you need to add a bit of baking soda to a darker beer or something like that, you could add some and uh, not worry about it too much. Just want to keep that total number under about 25 parts per million. Uh, Calcium is not as big a deal as it has been made out to be in the past. For ales, 50 parts per million is fine. Uh, You know, up to 100 isn't going to hurt you. Uh, Lagers need even less. The main thing that calcium will do is promote the clearing of your beer. And obviously with lagers, you're going to be lagering them, so that will help to clear them. Uh, You want to be careful not to get too much calcium because it will supposedly uh, promote early yeast flocculation if you put too much calcium in it. So... For an amber ale, it kind of depends on what you want. I can like my ambers on a, the more bitter side, so I would probably try and go for 
you know, maybe about 100 parts per million of sulfate and maybe around 50 of chloride. But again, I would really recommend you go get yourself a copy of Brunewater at Martin's website. We'll post a link to that. And read his water knowledge page because you can learn a whole lot real fast without having to go through a whole book by doing that. And then when you're using brune water, pick a profile that fits the color and flavor you want. Don't pick a city profile because you have no idea what the breweries in those cities might be doing to treat their water. Pick something like, you know, for again, for your amber ale, you would want something like amber balanced or maybe amber bitter or maybe amber malty. Uh, Work, work off of those. You have your water analysis and, uh, and take it from there. And hopefully that will give you a little bit of a head start on getting your water together. That make any sense, Drew? Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'll definitely, uh, second the recommendation for brewing water. Brewing water has kind of made it a lot easier for a, even a water dummy like me to be able to do some water work. Yeah. Right. As long as you know where you're starting from and, uh, pull up the right profile to be your target. It works great. Yeah. And can, and can I go on a rant about, uh, go on a rant about city profiles? <laughs> Don't use uh, a, a them. Minor rant. Yeah. Don't use them. They're terrible. You, they're averages and from weird periods of history. And Edinburgh is a perfect example. Which one of the wells from Edinburgh are they drawing from for that particular brewery? Cause it changes all over the dang city. Yeah. And so don't use and, them. Use something that makes your beer taste good. Yeah. And, and you know, and for all, you know, the brewer pulls out, you know, water from a, a an unidentified well and then treats it anyway. So just forget all about those, you know? If if you're brewing a Pilsner, you don't have to have Pilsen water. You just have to have the right water. Okay, we have one more water question, and it comes from Leandro, and he says, Hi. Again, congratulations to you both for such an excellent show. Especially enjoyed the IBU episodes interview with Dr. Tinseth. I am generally a fan of the interviews you make, but this one was special, particularly in learning all those bits of history on how his formula came about. Question related to salt additions for brewing. Traditional practices have recommended adding chalk when dealing with soft water and trying to emulate a hard water profile, for example, brewing stouts and porters. Reading the water book by Palmer, he advises against this practice and instead recommends using sodium bicarbonate, slaked lime, sodium hydroxide, or potassium hydroxide. Have you heard of home brewers and or commercial breweries following this recommendation? Or is everyone sticking to traditional approaches? If so, which alternative are they going for? Might be an interesting experiment to assess whether chalk works at all. Palmer State's chalk additions are generally ineffective for increasing alkalinity and mash pH, and if Palmer's alternative works better. Keep up the great show. Thank you, Leandro. Well, buddy, I got to tell you, I have done exactly that. Like you, I was one of the people who used uh, chalk for a long time to adjust my pH uh, and discovered that it really wasn't working very well. It turns out that chalk is only about 25% soluble in your mash. If you really have to use chalk, what you need to do is dissolve it with CO2 because that's the only way it's going to dissolve and work. That's, you know, something I don't want to have to hassle with. I have switched to using sodium hydroxide and sodium bicarbonate 
and I find that they're much more effective than chalk and easy to use. Sodium hydroxide is pickling lime. You can find it in grocery stores, places like that. And as I mentioned in the previous question, uh, sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, works well too, uh, as long as there isn't too much sodium in your water already. So I would say give up on the chalk, get yourself a copy of brewing water and some pickling lime and baking soda, and use those to adjust the alkalinity in your water, and you will end up with uh, something much more accurate, that, and it'll work a lot better for you. So do you just add the pickling lime and straight into the into the mash water it's just yes so no worry yes. about dissolving no it, cool. it dissolves perfectly fine in your mash water one thing that martin has said before is that uh, you want to add your salts to your water before heating it and that's because there is a, a possibility that if your water gets too hot it will drive off uh, some oxygen i believe and change the ph of the water in your mash uh, at any rate, I, I'm, I'm probably screwing all that up. But at any rate, put your salts in your mash water before you start heating it and heat it up. Uh, they dissolve just fine in there. And if you have any uh, calcium carbonate, uh, a.k.a. chalk around, get rid of it. Throw it away. <laughs> well, there you go. That, I learned something right there. That's good. Yep. 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 Okay. We're going to... Uh, Take a quick break here and then be back with some questions about troubleshooting. So stick around. MechaGrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Into every life, a little trouble must fall. And if trouble falls into yours, you must shoot it. That's right. It's <laughs> troubleshooting. That's where that comes from. Yeah. So these uh, questions are going to be uh, related both around troubleshooting and other things because, well, you also need a miscellaneous category. That's but right. let's uh, start with our troubleshooting uh, question that comes in from uh, Rich Ulis, who says, I have been struggling to diagnose a subtle off flavor that I recently began noticing in my beer. No one seems to pick it up but me, which makes it frustrating but I've also not had any true beer geeks look for it. The flavor is something like a salty, soapy, almost acidic twang on the back of my tongue. The beer just has an unpleasant edge. I make a range of styles and recently noticed it in an ordinary bitter, a dunkel, an APA, and a double. The flavor really isn't overpowering, but I notice it and it's driving me crazy. I've considered infection, but I don't really think that's it. I've been brewing both clean and funky beers for years now, and I'm confident that I know how to keep things sanitized. I brew with RO water and build it up to a relatively soft hardness of 75 ppm, so I'm not over-salting. I pitch healthy yeast in appropriate amounts and control fermentation temperature. My one guess is that I don't much worry about true getting into the fermenter, where I will often let the beer sit for three to four weeks. 
Palmer has said that Troub can lead to salty soapy flavors, but I never really took that concern seriously. If I have a large volume of Troub in the primary, could that be my issue? If not, do you have any other guesses for me? Many thanks for your time, Rich. Hmm. Well, so this is always hard to do, trying to figure out what exactly could be causing a flavor if we don't actually have the flavor in front of us. Yeah. First, I will say, I know exactly what you're talking about when you have a house flavor that you seem to have developed that only you seem to be able to detect. It drives you nuts. So, a couple thoughts. If you're ruling it out infection because because you're, you're fairly certain about your sanitation and it's not a flavor that's growing over time, which to me is always a sign of infection. Let's look at what's changed. So you have four different beer styles that you just told us about that all have sort of a similar water profile, I think from what you've said in the, in the notes, but they're all getting this flavor. And to me, that says you have something common behind the scenes that's going on. And that means either something going on with your RO system. So RO systems being what they are, uh, they are sometimes finicky and can start to let in uh, extra salts and everything else. And especially Uh, if you buy your RO from one of those machines in a grocery store, you have no idea when it was last cleaned. And there have been some real horror stories about those machines. Yeah. So the RO water and whether or not you're actually really starting with RO is an important concern to me. The other thing is what's changed about uh, your sanitation routine. Is there something about your cleaning routine? Is there something that isn't getting rinsed off correctly? Or is there something that's just got to build up? You know, uh, one of the other things to look at is calcium oxalate. You know, calcium oxalate can uh, build up in vessels and lead to off flavors. Is there something about the hoses? So really, what I think you almost have to do is do sort of an, a, a flavor breakdown. And this is a process that's used a lot of times in commercial breweries to try and track down, okay, where's the flavor coming from? And what that entails is doing tastings at every step along the way. So you grab samples of your water, your wort, your fermented beer, and everything, and you taste those as you move through processes. So like, for instance, a very popular one is if people are worried that they're chiller, is somehow causing an infection uh, if you're using like a counterflow chiller or a plate chiller is to take a sample of wort that is unchilled, hasn't passed through the, the chiller, and then take a sample of that same wort after it's passed through the chiller, keep those both refrigerated and let them sit for a couple days and then taste the two samples. If there's a flavor difference other than maybe some extra hoppiness, it indicates that you have a problem with your chiller. You can do the same sort of breakdown here to see where in the process this potential off flavor is coming from because that salty soapy thing, I don't think it's the truth. If you're only leaving your if you're only leaving your beer in primary for three to four weeks, I don't think that's your problem. Yeah, I, I, I gotta agree with that, Rich. Um, you know, it, it ain't the trube. I'm sorry. Uh and that kind of leaves uh, I hate to say it, but I think that you're wrong. I think that maybe you do have some sort of contamination going on. Um that's, you know, it, it's a guess, and without tasting your beer, it's about the best guess I can make. But I think that we're both pretty confident it's not the trube, huh? Yeah, but again, take a, take a look at all the stuff that you're, that you're doing that's common to these, to these four beers that you just mentioned. Because I'm guessing you can work out something that's changed, or, you know, a different ingredient supplier, or something. Because you know, there's something here that's happened in common for all these styles. 
And if it's not just infection, I mean, look, even if you want to completely rule out infection, go and sanitize all your equipment with, brand, with a different sanitizer. You know, if you're using Star Sand, switch over to Iota 4. If you're using Iota 4, switch over to Star Sand for a little bit. You know, get, get kind of a different kill volume in there. Uh, and really, you know, just kind of break it down. You know, think, uh, think about this systematically and figure out where this, in, this flavor is possibly being introduced. And if you really want to find out if you uh, have some sort of contamination in your beer, more beer sells test kits called Fast Orange that uh, I saw at CBC last year. And you can actually use them to test your beer or work for contamination and find out what's going on. So uh, if nothing else works, uh, look into that maybe and uh, see if you can get some definitive info. All right, there you go. So, uh, Denny, our next question comes from uh, Brazil. You want to read it? Oh, boy, do I ever. Actually, I want to go to Brazil, but uh, I'll read the question. Hi, Drew. Hi, Denny. I'm Mateus Diaz from the south region of Brazil. I heard the feedback from a fellow Brazilian in a previous show, and I second that. My question is in regards to conditioning after fermentation is done. It seems to be quite a controversial topic. I'd like to know your opinions on the effects of beer conditioning, especially the flavor contribution, if there is one. Do you think that a beer that has been fully attenuated and has no noticeable off flavors can benefit from an extended storage time? I've recently heard Dr. Charlie Bamforth from the University of California at Davis on the Beersmith podcast talking a little bit about a study being done by one of his master students trying to prove that there isn't the necessity of storage techniques like lagering after fermentation and diacetyl rest for producing great beers. Is there any beer style that you guys tend to employ some sort of conditioning? Best regards. Thanks for the incredible shows, Mateus. Well, man, I don't think that there is one answer. I think it depends on the beer, and some of them will benefit from aging. Some of them won't. Uh, I feel like something like a, like a super hoppy IPA is going to be best consumed uh, pretty much as fresh as you can get it once it's done. Whereas something like a barley wine will benefit from some aging. I, I once won a, a, an award for a five-year-old barley wine that, uh, you know, the uh, comments on the score sheet said oxidation has been very kind to this beer, uh, which I always took to mean that, uh, that it oxidized the right way. So I, I really don't think that there is one answer for everything. What do you think, man? Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously, most of the beer science out there in the world is going to be concerned about loggers and pilsners and trying to turn those things around faster. And I think as we've seen with various studies being done and various fermentation practices uh, being tried, you can produce really good loggers relatively quickly without having to employ traditional storage techniques. But those are also beers that have problems with age, right? You know, they don't have a lot of character to begin with, and their hoppy fresh notes are going to disappear much more rapidly with, uh, over time. So those are beers that you really don't want to store. But I will say to Denny's example, like the barley wine and whatnot, or say a Russian Imperial Stout, I think those really do benefit from aging. I think as you go up in alcohol, you, there's an impact that happens uh, where certain harsher flavors will mellow out and fade over time. But also like say with Russian Imperial Stouts, you also get things where, you know, the sort of frangible little bits of, uh, roasted malts will drop out, which leads to kind of a smoother uh, flavor as well. 
So, yeah, I think in terms of in terms of beer and age, if it's a beer style that doesn't need you know time to sort of mellow out the kind of harsh high alcohol notes, if you've had a clean fermentation, if you've gotten to uh, you know sort of your terminal gravity, you've cleared out the diastol. Yeah, you can turn around and serve things fast. I mean, this is the reason why I wrote that whole article about turning beers around in 10 days. Homebrewers in general, we have a we have a love of time. Uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because, you know, we all have other lives and other things that we're doing, but if you go and you look at the commercial brewery, commercial brewery is turning around an IPA as fast as they can. So they're going from mash tun to tank to glass in 10 days. And there's I mean, no the, reason we can't do it. Yeah, they're generally turning around everything as fast as they can. And I have to admit that for me, now that I have good temperature control and stuff, I can I can get an IPA from brewing to serving in maybe 10 or 12 days also. But that doesn't mean that I want to do that with every beer that I make. And generally, there will be changes over time. And you just kind of need to taste that beer and decide if that's going to benefit from uh, mellowing and blending the flavors or if it's best to have them slap you in the face. Uh, It's really a judgment call, and I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. There you go. All right, so now let's get into our others, our other questions. Because miscellaneous time. Uh, Our first one comes here from uh, Bill Swarovski in Buffalo, New York. Hello, Bill. Uh, It says, I have a quick question, and I'm only asking because I've really not heard of anyone doing this, but I have a feeling many are. I just want to be sure. In trying to shorten my brew day a bit, I was wondering why I couldn't aerate my wort while it was still in the brew kettle chilling with the immersion chiller. I use pure oxygen, and I understand that I should wait until the wort drops below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, according to something I recently read in BYO. I do not exactly have the beefiest chiller out there at present time, so rather than add a step of aerating the wort after it's in the fermenter, why not combine two steps and do it while still in the kettle? Thank you and keep up the good work. Cheers, Bill. P.S. With my Thanksgiving meal, I will be drinking a robust cream ale fermented with Y yeast 20, uh, 2112 California lager yeast. First time trying, pleased with it, and either an experimental black pepper porter or an imperial style for dessert. Um, black, thanks. black pepper yeah. porter, that kind of sounds good, man. Yeah, that does sound really good. So, all right, Bill, uh, let's talk about saving some time here. Uh, nope, sir, I don't like it. <laughs> if, uh, here's if, here's here's my problem uh, we have a hard enough time keeping oxygen in solution for uh for the fer- initial part of the fermentation steps my fear would be in terms of chilling pulling the beer down obviously warmer ha- warmer wort has less uh solubility to oxygen uh but even still your big problem is i think if you try and chill, or if you try and oxygenate in the brew kettle, when you go to rack or transfer the beer out of the brew kettle into your carboy, all you're going to do is off gas all that oxygen you just put in, into place. So, I think it's better to just chill the beer and get it into the carboy and then oxygenate it if you're going to. You know, the oxygenation it- step literally takes you know thirty seconds to two minutes based on your setup. And that would, I, I don't think it's worth the the time savings because I think you lose too much of the oxygen from the work. Yeah, if, if 
since he's using pure oxygen, it's only going to take a few seconds anyway, so I can't see that there's a major time saving from doing that. Uh, also, it's uh, pretty popular these days to state that uh, hot side aeration is a myth and just doesn't happen. And personally, while I'm a whole heck of a lot less worried about it than I used to be, I also feel like, why take a chance? So I generally try and uh, keep from over over whipping, over oxygenating, uh, over aerating my wort until it's below about 85 degrees because what the heck, why don't you want to be safe? So I'm withdrew. I say do the transfer, then aerate. There's a lot of good reasons for doing that. And any time saving that you're going to get uh, isn't going to really be enough to make it worth the possible risks. There you go. All right. You want to tackle the next one? Sure. This comes from Liam in Manchester, UK. And Liam says, hi, Denny and Drew. I'm relatively new to homebrewing, and so far I've only made a couple of batches using beginner beer kits, you know, the ones with the syrupy wort in the can. Well, those beers tasted awful, so I decided to go all in and build an all-grain system in my garage using the electric brewery guide. I have almost finished building the three-vessel system and am now planning my first brew day, which brings me to my question. For my first attempt, I gather simplicity will be the best approach. Can you please advise comment on my approach? First, I will attempt a clone of the Sierra Nevada Torpedo Extra IPA. My thinking is that this was a beer that would be more forgiving to a newbie than, say, a lager. Good move. I will perform the batch sparge method. I've purchased five packs of Wahis 1056 American Ale liquid yeast in an attempt to avoid making a starter. This would mean more work and more opportunity for something to go wrong. With the water, I plan to boil for 30 minutes before brewing in an attempt to reduce the amount of chlorine. I've heard that'll work. The water in my area is very soft, so for my first few batches, I don't intend to do much with regards to pH other than record it during the brew day so that I can use that information at a later date. Do you have any other tips or disagree with any of my approaches? By the time I get to do this batch, the yeast will be approaching its best before date. Would that force me to make a starter? Thanks for your time, gents, and I really, really love your podcast, so please keep up the great work. Liam. Hey, Liam. First, thanks for those nice words, man. We love hearing that. It keeps us doing it. I think that in general, you are on the right track. And let me just make a few comments here that uh, may may tweak things a little bit for you. Um, five packs of Wahis 1056. Holy cow, man. What's the gravity of that beer? 1070. <laughs> 1070. Okay. You know, I th- I think two or three would be fine uh, if you want. Well, to throw the, in the problem is we don't uh, we don't know what the the vessel or the, sorry the brew length is. Yeah, that's true. Assuming you're going to be making a five gallon, twenty liter ish batch, uh, two or three packs would probably be p- plenty. I doubt that anything would be hurt if you put in all five, but I I think that's kind of overkill. Uh, if you truly have chlorine and not chloramine in your water, yes, the boiling is a great way to get rid of it. You can also just let it sit uncovered overnight and save the energy from the boil, and uh, that'll off-gas the chlorine also. 
If it's yeah, chlorine, and it does look like Manchester, UK uses chlorine. Okay, great. Huh. Drew's on the research here today. So yeah, so if it's chlorine, sure, boil it if you want to do that, or just uh, draw it the night before and let it sit uncovered, and you should be fine. Uh, pH-wise, especially you say your water is very soft. Um, the grain itself has enough color to it so that it will naturally pull your pH down into the right range, or at least towards the right range. Uh, and I would say throw a nice, healthy teaspoon of gypsum into the boil for easy water treatment for an IPA. Let me tell you that before I got into water treatment for the first five years, that was pretty much uh, my theory of using grains to adjust the pH and gypsum to adjust the flavor. And I won some ribbons for those beers. So uh, it'll work. It's easy. And it'll get you brewing beer while you're doing more research and seeing if you want to do anything more in the future. So, yeah, man, you, you are on the right track. Uh, I would. The other thing I would say is uh, start your fermentation cool. I would recommend about 63 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. You'll have to do the conversion or Mr. Research there will tell you what it is. Um, it but is. start a cool. Wait, hold on. Yes, yes. Uh, it's 17.2 degrees Celsius. Okay, so start at about 17 degrees Celsius. Hold it there for three or four days. Then you can start bringing the temperature up. This is assuming you have some sort of temperature control. And uh, by the end of the, the a week or 10 days, you want it to be up in the 70-degree range, and that should pretty much finish up nicely for you. But definitely don't start it too warm. Other than that, man, brew. Take good notes and try it again. What do you say, Drew? Yeah, there you go. I, I, I just have to uh, admire the, the chutzpah of going from syrupy can kits to an all a three vessel all uh, all grain electric brewing setup <laughs> yeah man that is one hell of a jump isn't it <laughs> very nice i uh, and i'll agree with denny it just you know the yeast is the yeast is its own thing i don't think with five packs if you're approaching the be- uh, the best before date you'll still be fine uh yeah yep chlorine is what it is if you don't want to wait the time or you don't want to actually go and uh, boil it off you can also just use a little bit of uh, potassium metabisulfite, and that will bind to the chlorine as well. It does the same thing for chloramine, and it's pretty much exactly how I treat my water. Yep. And yeah, I also agree with the the easy suggestion of just a little bit of gypsum uh, in the beer, because I think that will help pop your hop character, particularly for something like uh, Torpedo, which is all about the hop character. Yeah, and it'll, it'll dry the finish out. So in a beer like that, I would use a heaping teaspoon of gypsum for uh, a five-ish gallon batch. There you go. All right. Hey, Denny, guess what time it is? Yes, sir. Yes, it's time yes. For our last, it's time for our last question. Oh, you're kidding. Really? We've gotten down to the end, huh? Yeah. And, well, and of course, uh, if you haven't read your question, don't worry. We still have your question and we'll be getting back to it. Oh, it's yeah. Just, yeah. Oy, this episode. All right. So here we go. Our, our last question comes from Regina in Saskatchewan. And it says, hi, guys. It's uh, Derek Barnes. He says, hi, guys. I am a fairly new brewer, so I'm still trying to nail down my process. I've recently started cold crashing before bottling. Two-part question. Oh, he's cheating. Two parts. Uh, All right. One, how long do you usually crash? I ask because I recently dry hopped a wheat beer for three days, and then I cold crashed for two more days. I didn't use a hop bag. I just chucked the hops into the carboy. The last couple of times I did that, the hops settled out. This time, each bottle has nearly a quarter inch of 
Troub, I guess. Looks like mostly hops. It's a small test batch just for me, so I can pour carefully, but I'd like the next batch to look better. Does cold crashing affect the taste and final appearance of the brew other than removing some junk that settles from the bottom of the bottle? It's maybe a question for the Igors. Uh, and then the second part of the question, when using priming sugar calculators, it asks for the temperature of the beer. Do I enter 2 degrees C, the temperature of the beer when I crash and bottle it, or 18 C, temperature of my bottles will be sitting at to carbonate? Thanks in advance, Derek. All right, uh, Derek, part one. Uh, when I'm dry hopping and cold crashing, I will typically take at least 7 to 10 days. I think uh, in my chest freezer where, I, where I'll store this stuff or the fridge, that seems to be about the amount of time I need in order to actually really be able to get the beer to clear. Now, obviously, you can also speed that up by using a fining mechanism like gelatin or keg clear or super clear. But that's really what I do, about 7 to 10 days. Sometimes if I'm feeling lazy, I'll even cold crash for multiple weeks. And that will that will definitely help you with your issue. Now, of course, the other thing that you then have to do is make sure that when you are getting the beer out of the carboy, that you are also making sure that you're not stirring up everything that's settled out. That's the reason why I started racking with CO2. Uh, on your question about priming sugar calculators and what temperature. So this is going to be one of those ones where it's been a long time since I've done this, but I don't think either of your answers are correct. When I always used to do it, the temperature that you would plug into the temperature calculator was effectively the highest temperature that that beer saw after fermentation was done and before you bottled it. And the reason for that is what that temperature factor is supposed to be about is how much CO2 is actually dissolved in solution when you go to bottle the beer. So basically, if your beer is at 20 C, when you go to bottle it and the CO2 is finished being produced, you know, because fermentation's over, then your beer is only going to hold whatever amount of CO2 can be dissolved in solution, you know, when it's at 20 C. If your beer is still at 15 C, it's going to have much more uh, carbonation in it. The way to think about it is, we, I think we've all done this where we've had a carboy sitting somewhere after fermentation is done, it's in a secondary or whatever, we had airlock on it. And the temperature in our fermentation space is changing. And one day it warms up and you see bubbles starting to bubble through the airlock. And you go, oh my God, fermentation's restarted. No, fermentation hasn't restarted. That's CO2 coming out of solution, right? So the right answer, I think, for number two is what is the warmest the beer has been between the time that fermentation finished and the time that you went to go bottle it? Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Benny? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, in terms of the cold crashing, I usually find that three or four days at uh, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what I crash to, uh, will do it. Uh, or 0.5 Celsius. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, but, you know, I, after that time, I uh, pull a sample of the beer, uh, I check the gravity, I taste it, I look at it, and I let that uh, decide for me. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that you dry hopped before cold crashing. I prefer to do it the other way around for a couple of reasons. If I cold crash first, I get rid of the yeast before I dry hop, so I don't have to worry about biotransformation uh, between the yeast and the hops. And also, uh, cold crashing can pull out some of your dry hop uh, aroma and flavor, so I kind of like to get that out of the way first. All right. Well, there you go. I think, I'm not sure, but I think we've actually successfully handled all of our questions. Oh, man. No well, wonder. Okay. Most, no most wonder. questions. 
But, you know, don't forget, we always love to have questions, and most of our episodes will have a Q&A unless we're ramping up for this particular show. And so you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or questions at experimentalbrew.com to enter into the magical question queue. Of course, you can always ask us a question anywhere that you find us, and we'll try our best to answer it. Uh, but, hey, don't we have one more thing left to do? Yes, we do. But you know what? I think it's time for a break before we uh, come back and talk about the AHA Governing Committee elections. Woo! <laughs> Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that little break. And now it's time for us to get, well, political. Division. Political, political. Wait, no, we're talking beer politics, folks. That's right. All right. So if you don't know, both Denny and I serve on the HA Governing Committee, which is a group of individuals who are elected by the members of the American Homebrewers Association. And we, you know, we come together and we help guide the HA in the directions that we think that they should go for the betterment of U.S. homebrewers. And actually, nowadays, even more than just the U.S. So, every year, there are new members added and members dropped off. And uh, the election is due in, oh no, two days. So, what, we've, what we're going to present to you right now is actually, Denny is going to play an interview that he had with Gary about the governing committee and the value of the governing committee, why people should run for the governing committee, and why you should vote for who's going to serve on your governing committee. And uh, we also want to make sure that we give a shout out and a thanks to the Brewing Network, who actually provided us with the audio feed of all these candidate statements that you'll hear after you hear from Gary. So you'll actually be able to hear from the, I think it's 13 people who are running That's for right. this year's governing committee elections. So give it a listen. Let's uh, hear from Gary. Make sure you listen to everybody who's running and then make your take your quick, quick time to go vote because your vote is due by March 31st. I'm here with AHA Director Gary Glass, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the AHA Governing Committee. Yeah, so the, the Governing Committee is, uh, is, is kind of like what you would think of as a, as a board. Um, it evolved out of, uh, it previously was called Board of Advisors, um, when, when the, uh, the AHA's parent company, the Brewers Association, uh, merged with the Brewers Association of America. We, we, we changed things up and, and uh, transition the the board of advisors into a governing committee um, and and since I've been director uh, which was right around the time that was happening uh, I, I took over in 2006 um, it was it was very much important to me that uh, this this uh, this body of, of elected volunteers um, really plays a key role mm -hmm. in in what we do with the the American Home Brewers Association so I kind of see the the governing committee is kind of like our legislative branch. They come up with the ideas, and and uh, uh, and then the 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 staff of the AHA executes that. Right. Um, and and it's really uh, you know it, the AHA just wouldn't function without that group. Um, you know, I'm just not that creative a person, and so uh, <laughs> I'm I'm great at taking good ideas and rolling with it. Um, and and of course, there's there's certain times where you know as as the person who has to execute things, I. You know, we take into account the resources that we've got sure. and things like that. So, so the staff very much interacts with the governing committee and in coming up with 
the ideas that we have, but um, it's such a cr critical role having that, that group of people that's elected by the members to steer us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, I, and I think, I know you, Denny, like I just, I've seen some of your posts on the, on the forum. I think you downplay the role of the governing committee to a certain extent. Um, for me, it's vital. Uh, without nice without that input, I mean, I, I just think of your contributions over, over the time. It's like, you know, we we wouldn't have launched the whole new website. That's well, it's not new anymore. But um, you know, we had this joint website with the Brewers Association uh, called Beer Town um, that really was kind of clunky and not that great. And um, from your contributions, Denny, we, we ended up with the AHA Forum and HomebrewersAssociation.org. Uh, so you know, and that's just that's just a couple of examples of of things that come out of uh, ideas from the governing committee. So it really is a it's a really critical part of the association, and like, we as a staff can't can't do it without the governing committee. Right, and I know that I mean you guys are obviously out there. You, you everybody on on the AHA staff belongs to like a club of some mm -hmm. sort and brews, but I've always felt like the governing committee is a place where, you know people who are just like regular old home brewers and talking to their club can talk ideas with them and then bring them to, to the governing committee meetings where we discuss how we can and if we can implement some of those ideas. Sure, and, and it also brings some regional diversity because obviously we're, our staff is all based in the Boulder area. Um, and then, and then you think about the, the just the different professions that are uh, that the governing committee members have. Like you know, Roxanne Westendorf is the the current chair of the governing committee. Uh, she's retired from Procter and Gamble. She's on our she created our survey subcommittee, mm -hmm. and her input on those surveys because that's what she did right. um, is is invaluable. And so taking all those different expertises that uh, that that the the governing committee members bring. Um, really also plays a very key role in, in, in kind of the diversity in which uh, we, we operate. Right, well maybe we can get a ukulele subcommittee going. <laughs> you, you go ahead and form that. You can be the, <laughs> the chair of the subcommittee and the sole member of the subcommittee. Yeah, right. and, and, and you bring to us what, uh, what you will. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys can go, no, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. So uh, with that overview of what the governing committee does, let's take a listen to some interviews with the people who are running for the, uh, the governing committee this year. Hey, homebrewers, this is Martin Brungard, and I'm one of your AHA Governing Committee members. It's been a busy three years of adding value to your AHA membership, and I'm still looking forward to adding to our great hobby. In my almost two decades of brewing, club membership, and AHA membership, I've picked up on a guiding principle. We're all looking for satisfaction. Now, there are plenty of ways to achieve that, you need people representing you that strive to make that a reality. I'm hoping you've benefited from my articles in Zymergy, speaking at conferences, or my additions to our brewing knowledge, but it's not all about the geeky stuff. I've also worked hard to make our conferences fun. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping that you're joining us this summer in Minneapolis or maybe at a future conference, wherever they might be. They're a blast. Well, this is a glimpse of who I am, and I hope that you'll choose me as one of your governing committee representatives. It's been great to add value to your membership for the past three years, and I'm glad you're a member. Enjoy.
My name is Garrett Dean, candidate for American Homebrewers Association Governing Committee. I've been involved in homebrewing for over 20 years, beginning with my first batch in 1994. After I tried craft beer for the first time, I knew right away it was a hobby that I wanted to get involved with. I purchased a homebrew kit, joined the AHA, and I've been brewing ever since. One of my favorite things about homebrewing is the social aspect. As I say in my personal statement, food, fellowship, and fun is my brewing motto. Getting together with friends and family makes brewing even more enjoyable. And the fact that we're drinking finished beer while brewing never hurts either. Bringing people together to further the hobby is extremely important to me. And participating as a member of the AHA Governing Committee will allow me to expand that outreach beyond my own brewing sessions. As I continue to learn about the different styles, history, and culture, and the science of brewing, I'd love the opportunity to share those experiences with the committee, help drive the AHA in a positive direction, and continue to grow in knowledge myself. In addition to having a passion for homebrewing, I know my profession as a corporate attorney will also help me as a committee member. I have expertise in all manner of concerns that affect brewers of all sizes, including homebrewers. In addition to understanding and enjoying the products, I have offered pro bono legal services to small breweries on business formation, intellectual property protection, contracts, and lots more. My experiences have included education on the ongoing legislative activities required to expand the rights of homebrewers in many states. This to me is incredibly important as it supports both my own desires to further the hobby as well as the mission of the AHA. I fully support the committee's charter to recommend activities, programs, and courses of action for the AHA. I know that with my personal and professional experience, coupled with my desire for continuous learning, I can offer a great deal as a member of the governing committee. Thank you for your consideration, and I would be honored to receive your vote and represent homebrewers on the committee. Hi, my name is Lauren Dom, and my homebrew club is the Carolina Brewmasters out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, just to tell you a little bit about how my husband and I got started in homebrewing, about six or seven years ago, he got a Mr. Beer kit and then waited a very long time to make it. And by the time he brewed the kit, the beer was terrible. And he decided after that, he went straight to all grain brewing because he wanted to be able to control the ingredients and more of the process. And then a couple of years later, he decided to add me in. So I have been um, making cider and mead and wine, which, of course, has helped. He is a much stronger brewer than I am. Um, and we've been involved with our homebrew club because we've been learning a lot from them. Um, and actually, over the last many years, it's, the brewing process, at least, has increased a lot and that's encouraged us to be involved in the homebrew clubs and finding out about the AHA and attending the conferences. And so um, from that, I've decided I would like to be more involved. When I sat down to think about the skills that I could bring to the AHA committee, I started by looking at the subcommittees. When you think about the conference subcommittee, I have a ton of experience with event planning as my business degree is in hospitality. Um, and I've planned multiple weddings and other events that have experience that would be relatable to conferences. In addition to um, previous jobs where I was doing contract negotiation for a major hotel chain. 
One of the things I noticed about the people on the AHA governing committee currently is that there is no one from the Southeast. So hopefully I get to fill that gap. And if you feel so inclined, please vote for me for that committee. My name is Phil Farrell. For over 30 years, I've been uh, home brewing and it's been part of my life. I would have to say that some of my best and longest lasting friendships are because of home brewing. If my name is familiar, you may have gone to one of my seminars, participated in a talk, a homebrew class, or even judged with me. I was a Wincoop uh, Beer Drinker of the Year back in 2011. I'm the uh, current South Regional Rep and also the Vice President of the BJCP. The Brewers Association and I have a long and uh, fun history of uh, participating as a volunteer at everything from NHC, the GABF, and the World Beer Cup. When it comes time to vote this year for uh, your next group of representatives for the Board of Governors, I am asking for your vote. I am first and foremost a home brewer, just like you are, and I want to continue to make this the most wonderful hobby in the entire world. Thank you again, and uh, good brewing out there. My name is Bob Kapuzinski, and I'm running for a position on the AHA Governing Board. I've been a home brewer for nearly 30 years and recently retired from my job and finally have the time to invest more into the hobby that has given me pleasure for so many years. Recent reports have been showing that home brewing as a whole has been on the decline for the past several years. The AHA has been seeing a decline in membership as well as homebrew supply stores reporting lower and slower sales. Though the AHA's purpose is to promote home brewing, I think the AHA needs to look at new and more ways to get people into the hobby by providing more information for beginning brewers to help keep those new brewers involved. Many homebrewers start by brewing themselves, often because they received a homebrew kit as a gift. These people try a couple of batches and find they don't make the quality of beer that they were expecting. Though many people brew by themselves, beer is a social drink, and I believe homebrewing is a social hobby. By joining a homebrew club, many new brewers can hopefully find those answers that can help them make better beer and keep them from packing up that homebrew kit and storing it in the closet. One of the other things I would like to see the committee to focus on is getting the many new small breweries and brew pubs that have opened in the last few years involved in their local homebrew communities. By involving the homebrew community, a microbrewery can increase their client base as well as get homebrewers more involved in the hobby. There are several ways that I see professional brewers helping homebrewers. Though competitions are first to come to mind, I think the best way is by passing on the knowledge they have accumulated. They can do this by having seminars at the brewery or at their local homebrew club meetings. Seminars on yeast, yeast harvesting, yeast propagation, water chemistry, hops, and hop utilization are just a few. These are just a couple of the issues that I want to see the committee work on. Thank you for your time and hopefully your vote. Cheers. Hi, thanks for listening in. I'm Jill Marilli, and it would be a privilege to serve on the AHA Governing Committee. I started brewing only about five years ago, and my skills are still growing. Sometimes finding time is the hardest part of brewing. Do you ever feel that way? I believe one of the most important skills I bring to the board is the knowledge and experience of actually serving on a nonprofit board and the professionalism it takes. This means for you that you can count on me to communicate, facilitate, and create an opportunity for all members' growth, access to information, and effective support of our chosen hobby and association. I'm most interested in growing support to our clubs and what their individual needs may be. I'm a big believer that one size does not fit all, whether it applies to our individual members or our clubs. 
It's not all fun and games, but we can definitely make it fun. When you vote for me, you put a person on the board who has commitment, focus, and the energy to get it all done. And I'll probably have a stout or maybe a Belgian beer in my hand ready to share with you. So please vote for me, Jill Marilli. Hello, AHA. My name is Ron Minkoff, candidate for the AHA Governing Committee. I'm currently wrapping up three years as president of the Hogtown Brewers, who happened to be the 2016 Radagast Homebrew Club of the Year. But you can refer to my candidate statement to read about my homebrew club and brewing involvement. Fair to say, there's a, there's a healthy amount. But, you know, what's great about homebrew clubs and the AHA, they can do some legwork once, and they give that info for the benefit of a large audience so nobody reinvents the wheel. And that info enables many to learn new brew skills and get new ideas to upgrade their homebrew quality of life. Now, because that area is kind of my thing due to my involvement in the homebrewing scene in Florida, I'd like to step up and work with the AHA to bring ideas and lessons learned to the AHA crowd. Ideas include, for example, something very easy and useful right off the bat, a one Stop Brewing Resource Portal. You'll see an example at hogtownbrewers.org. Just click on the Brew School link. The HA could do an extended and refined version of that, and it'll help a lot of brewers. Number two, the HA can help clubs do more by providing details on how to significantly upgrade their financial resources. As mentioned in the Good Life Seminar I presented at the 2016 HA Conference. And spoiler alert, Selling beer does a bank account good. You know, homebrewers like having fun by showing off their homebrewing and even culinary kung fu, but they don't really have an outlet to do that with the public. Well, we've ironed out ways to do that and in a legal manner, uh, which is the key phrase. Okay, so those ideas are a good quick start. And for idea number four through a thousand, Got those in a bag, ready to unpack, as I look forward to helping evolve the great work the HA already does. Yes, I'm welcomed into the committee. Cheers. Hello, fellow homebrewers. My name is Dennis Mitchell, and I'm asking for your vote for the AHA Governing Committee. I'm going to keep this short because you have a lot of candidates to consider this year, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you would rather be brewing or drinking rather than listening to us uh, talk about why you should elect us. I'm not a big uh, beer homebrewing celebrity, don't have a lot of name recognition outside uh, homebrew clubs and some of the work I do with the BJCP, but what I do have is a passion for the hobby and a true love for our community uh, in the AHA and homebrewers in general. I love uh, hearing new ideas about brewing, and uh, I want to take that to uh, the governing committee, listen to your ideas about how to make the AHA better and everything that it does. Uh, so I know that these organizations have a lot of volunteers, and these volunteers are what make the organizations better. So I have a proven track record of that. I'm a dedicated worker, and we'll work on your behalf to get things done. So now uh, I'd like you to stop listening to this, to go vote, and then uh, go brew some beer. Cheers. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm Jesse Pringle from Plantsville, Connecticut, and I've been a home brewer since 1992. After a few years of collecting more cases of homebrew than I could either drink or give away, I took a break of about 20 years, but then I dove back into the hobby a few years ago. 
I began going to forums and listening to the podcast like Beersmith, Basic Brewing, and of course the Brewing Network. And I've been a corporal in the BN Army for a few years now and am an active member of the Experimental Brewing's Igor program. I'm WWJPD on all of those platforms and forums. I became interested in the AHA Governing Committee last year. I got the same email that all of us AHA members do, and I decided I would actually research the candidates, and that led me to the committee. When I finally got to the NHC uh, conference last year, I met and talked to some of the members, like Denny Kahn, Drew Beecham, and Fred Bonjour, and that helped solidify my desire to be on the governing committee. There are a few areas that I'm hoping to focus on while serving as a member. One area of focus for me would be club support. Joining a homebrew club a few years ago was a fantastic experience, and it allowed me to find a place to get real-time feedback and discussions on brewing. I joined the board of my homebrew club, which is the Middlesex Malters, over a year ago, and I've been part of the planning committee. I secured club insurance through the AHA, and I've been responsible for our club newsletter. I'd like to help the AHA promote and support clubs more, as I feel this is the primary area that's really going to help the AHA grow, also help promote the hobby while making homebrewer club experiences better. Another area of focus of the governing committee that I'm interested in is, is the research and education subcommittee. I'd personally like to see even more real research and information available on homebrewing, and I think others would too, so helping this committee create more of that would just benefit all members. Professionally, I've been a manager in software development for the last 15 years, and I feel my experience in management will only help me serve on the governing committee. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I hope you vote for me. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jeff Frankert, a current governing committee member running for re-election. I have been homebrewing for 24 years, been an AHA member for 18, and a member of the Ann Arbor Brewers Guild for about 18 years. And I'm currently a BJCP national-level judge. This year in Minneapolis will be my 12th conference. Online, I have the handle of Hoffen und Maltz on a couple forums, so you may know me from that. In the past three years, I've been on the Radagast Committee and the Research and Education Fund Committee. I've also judged, and with my wife Susan stewarding, the first round NHC in Zanesville and in Indianapolis for the last three years at the different sites. And the final round the last three years. If you compete, helping to judge is one way to assist and support the national homebrew competition. This year, my wife and I plan on combining travel with more first-round judging. We'll be at Indy, Tampa, and Austin for the first rounds there. So see you there. Oh, and we'll be at the final round again in Minneapolis judging and stewarding. Homebrewing is more than a hobby for me. It's become more of a lifestyle. We travel often, we find that beer is that social lubricant and a common topic of conversation around the USA or in Europe. We've made countless friends. Some we see once a year at Homebrew Come, but we resume right where we left off. Making excellent beer and sharing knowledge is what I try to do. I'm still learning about beer every day and always trying to improve my brewing process. I love the hobby and try to give some energy back to it. For me, it's not just a hobby. It's that lifestyle I talked about. So thanks for your time, and thanks again if you vote for me. Hello, I'm Blair Richardson, and I've been involved in the food and beverage industry for over 15 years. My first real experience with home brewing, however, was about four years ago when a friend helped me brew a Belgian strong ale in my shop on my cherry farm located in California. It was an amazing experience and set me off on a passion to learn how to brew awesome beer at home. 
While we sold our ownership of most of our California farms in 2013, including about four acres of hops we were experimenting with, I still own the cherry farm and love using our own cherries and our home brews each spring, but now live in Denver, Colorado, where I'm the president and CEO of Potatoes USA, a marketing and research organization representing every potato farmer in the country. My experience in managing this organization and other industry associations began in 2002 and also includes many years of serving on association boards, both regional and national in scope. So I have extensive knowledge and experience that is applicable to a role on the governing committee for the American Homebrewers Association. Importantly, I understand the responsibilities of committees and boards as opposed to responsibilities of staff members. Our role is that of support, guidance, and long-term strategy. A committee member should not be involved in the daily operating activities of an association. In regard to my passion for home brewing, I am blessed to have a wonderful wife, Marty, who shares my passion and actually knows more about brewing than I do. We brew together on a regular basis and have been focusing a lot of energy this past year on barrel-aged beers, wild yeast, and unusual ingredients. We love brewing on our front porch and use a 20-gallon RIM system that has been a pleasure to operate. This allows us to regularly share the home brewing experience with our friends and neighbors who are notified on brew days and join us for beers we previously kegged. We almost always have six or seven different beers on tap in our home and enjoy sharing our home brewing adventures with everyone who drops by on brew days. This year we'll be collecting wild yeast from our cherry orchard just prior to harvest with hopes of identifying a great yeast that we can play with for years to come. I have a passion for home brewing and many years of experience that I can bring to the American Home Brewers Association. I would be grateful for your support and would be honored to serve on this board. Hi, my name is Elmer Steingast, but I am known as Goose to all of my friends. I live in Worcester, Ohio, which is about 50 miles south of Cleveland. I have been a home brewer for 20 years and am a BJCP certified beer judge. I am currently studying to advance to the rank of national. I also have professional brewing experience, having been a brewer at Hop and Frog Brewery in Akron, Ohio for six years. I currently belong to three homebrew clubs, the Society of Akron Area Zymergists in Akron, Ohio, the Mansfield, Ohio Brew Club, where I'm a past president and the club's current secretary, and I'm a charter member of the Wayne County, Ohio Brew Club. I'm running for the AHA Governing Committee because I would like to help make the Governing Committee and the AHA even more responsive to the needs of our membership. I am interested in working with other members of the Governing Committee and the AHA to help modify archaic state laws regulating homebrewed beer and mead to bring these state regulations into line with the federal law that legalized homebrewing in the United States. I have done a good bit of research on this as it pertains to the Ohio liquor laws and I'm working with my state legislators to amend these laws to agree with federal law. I would appreciate your vote in the upcoming governing committee election. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stuart West and I'm running for a position on the AHA governing committee in order to represent homebrewers everywhere and make a difference. We all know that the craft beer market in the U.S. has changed drastically in the last decade, but we are now in uncharted territory when it comes to its growth. More breweries and brew pubs are opening up across the country, and consumers have a large number of choices when it comes to different beer styles. This surge of activity is creating opportunities as well as challenges when it comes to promoting homebrewing and getting more people involved. I think it's great that the current HA Governing Committee has so many well-known and respected beer celebrities and authors in its ranks. But to be honest, every organization can benefit from an infusion of new ideas, especially when faced with significant changes. Homebrewing continues to evolve, and I hope the AHA Governing Committee can proactively change along with it. 
I am eager to get involved and add input in a tangible way if I'm elected, because I firmly believe home brewers are at the forefront of creative brewing in our country, and we need to foster that dynamic by expanding our ranks, providing our HA members with all the resources they need to remain creative, and making sure every state in our country is free of legislative and statutory hurdles that could negatively impact homebrewing or homebrew competitions. Again, my name is Stuart West, and I hope to be your representative on the AHA Governing Committee. To learn more about my lengthy homebrewing journey, as well as my qualifications, please visit the AHA website. Thank you. Okay, that was Gary Glass talking about what the Governing Committee does and uh, why it's important for people to serve on it. And we heard from 13 people who are running for the Governing Committee who uh, have some different ideas about uh, what they would like to do, but all of them are there to help promote homebrewing and to help make your homebrewing experience even better. So if you're an AHA member, head to homebrewersassociation.org right away, because you only have two days left, and vote for whoever sounded good to you. All right, well, hey, I think that's it. We're done. Wow. A marathon episode, as it were. Yeah, there you go. I think we broke our New Year's resolution of keeping this thing under two hours. Oh well, yeah. lots oh, of good well. content. That's we got right. to be able to we got to be able to talk today about the governing committee. We got to answer a whole bunch of questions. We heard a whole bunch of funny disaster stories out there from people. Remember, folks, be safe while you're brewing. We love you. We want you to come back and enjoy more of the shows. That's right. Be safe out there. And just uh, as a little tease here. Our next episode, we will have the long-awaited results of the Brutan B experiment, and we'll be talking with Joe Formanek once again. But until then, thanks a whole bunch for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest writings and adventures by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. Uh, I'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums out there, including the AHA Discussion Forum. Drew hangs out on the Reddit Home Brewing Forum. You can find us just about anywhere out there on the web. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.